Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Welcome everyone. Today we have a special edition with a power couple, Aislinn Born, Professor of Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, and Alex Imas, Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Aislinn and Alex, thank you very much for your time and your participation in the podcast. We are very happy to have you here. Uh, thank you for hosting thank us. Thank you today. for hosting us. Yeah, we're happy to be here. Today, we are going to talk about your work that combines the dynamics of performance and judgment with the topic of discrimination. Among many other points, we will discuss your paper, The Dynamics of Discrimination, Theory and Evidence, co-authored with Michael Rosenberg. It was published in 2019 in the American Economic Review. First, congratulations on receiving the 2020 Exeter Prize. As a matter of background, the Exeter Prize is awarded by the University of Exeter Business School to the best paper published in a peer-reviewed journal in the fields of experimental economics, behavioral economics, and decision theory. For anyone listening who hasn't read the paper yet, could you briefly outline the main points and results? And just to jump in here, um, one of the you know one of these reasons this is interesting is that often discrimination is studied in a static setting, but really discrimination in the real world is a very much a dynamic process. And so, of course, of a, a first order importance, it is to understand what's going on with how discrimination evolves across time. But another question that economists often ask is what's causing the discrimination or what's the underlying source of that discrimination? Um, more specifically, is it coming from preferences? In other words, do people dislike certain groups of people and that's why they face discrimination? Or is it coming from beliefs? In other words, no one inherently dislikes different groups, but they may say believe that on average, pull an individual from one population group, they're going to have, say, lower average performance or productivity than people from another population group for a variety of different reasons. And then, of course, within that second or the belief-based or statistical discrimination category, people's beliefs could either be correct, there could actually be differences, or they could be incorrect in the sense that they there may be no differences, but people just incorrectly believe that there are. And so the reason it's important to identify this source of discrimination is because as a first step, identifying discrimination is the first step to trying to do something about fixing it. But the next step to do something about fixing it is figuring out what's causing it. Is it preferences? Is it beliefs, but there are two differences? Is it beliefs, but the beliefs are wrong? And as you can imagine, the interventions that will mitigate discrimination will differ depending on what the underlying cause is. And so in that sense, we also show that looking at the dynamics is an important way that we can, as economists, figure out what's causing underlying discrimination. And the reason for that is that the different models of the different sources I just outlined make different dynamic predictions. So if you think about taste-based discrimination, if you dislike a certain group, it doesn't really matter if you're encountering new entry-level workers from that group or high-level workers from that group, you still have the dislike against them. So in that sense, discrimination should remain relatively constant across time. Whereas if you, say, believe that workers from one group are lower on average in terms of performance than another group, then it may be that as you gain a lot of experience working with an individual from the um, group that you think has lower performance, you think, well, you know, maybe on average this group isn't very high performing, but this individual is really great. And so in that sense, if it's belief-based, the prediction is that as you gain more experience with an individual, your reliance on population statistics will decrease because you know that individual really well, and therefore the discrimination should decrease across time. 
prediction. And then actually we show that an, a new prediction we have here is that if the discrimination is stemming from inaccurate beliefs, then not only will the discrimination decrease across time, but it can potentially even reverse in the sense that the workers from the group that's discriminated against who actually do make it to a high level will eventually be given more positive evaluation than workers with similar performance histories from the group that is initially favored. And the reason for that being is we say, you know, let's suppose there's two types of people evaluating a worker. One is people who think the two groups are the same. They correctly think the two groups are the same. Another is people who think that um, the group that's initially discriminated against is lower average productivity than the group that's not discriminated against. Then across time, the group who thinks the workers are the same is going to know that they're facing discrimination. And so they think, you know, these two workers started out the same, but the worker from the um, group who's discriminated against was facing discrimination all along. So the fact that they were still able to succeed despite this discrimination means they must be really, really good. They had to jump through higher hurdles to get to this more senior position in the company. So they must be even better than, the, say, the person who wasn't discriminated against to manage to make it to that position because the person not facing discrimination had an easier path there. Whereas the people who initially, the evaluators who initially started out thinking that the one group was, say, lower, um, lower average productivity than the other, again, for the same reason I outlined before, their beliefs are going to be decreasing. So their belief about the differences in productivity for the people who do make it decrease. And so on average, this averages out to eventually the people who do make it up to higher level positions in the company will see a reversal if the cause of that is the inaccurate beliefs. We wouldn't see that with accurate beliefs, but we would see such a reversal with inaccurate beliefs. One important caveat to keep in mind here is that observing such a reversal is very much not saying that, okay, well, we don't need to worry about discrimination at senior positions, just at entry level. Because if you think about it, the people who do make it through to the senior positions do, in fact, say, are, face discrimination in the opposite direction. But there's a lot of people who should have made it through from the group who's initially discriminated against who don't make it through to that position. So it's not at all saying that discrimination is not a problem at the senior level. It's more saying that if we do observe such a reversal, it's very suggestive of discrimination that was due to inaccurate beliefs at the entry level. And then, of course, the implication of that is that that discrimination was causing too many people from the um, disadvantaged group to exit the labor market before they could have reached that senior position when they should have or they would have had they been from the non-disadvantaged group. So that was a theoretical prediction. And then we um, looked for, we um had a really nice platform that we found that could let us test these predictions empirically. Um, essentially, the platform um, was one where we could exogenously vary both the name of the worker as well as whether they were entry level on the platform, so they hadn't previously been on the platform, or whether they were what were called high reputation users. So they've been on the platform for a while and built up a lot of reputation from successful previous um, interactions on the platform. And so we compared these two different groups. We looked for gender discrimination. We found, in fact, that there was gender discrimination at the entry level. Male users on the platform were systematically higher, received systematically more positive evaluations than females for the same quality work. But at the high level, the discrimination actually reversed. And so females received systematically higher evaluations than male workers when they were high reputation users for the same quality work. And therefore, coming back to our theory, this reversal is suggestive that we do see discrimination. It's caused by beliefs, but not preferences. And specifically, it's caused by inaccurate beliefs about the differences in male and female productivity on the platform. Wow, yeah. Thank you very much for the summary. And actually, when I first came around the paper, I thought, wow, what an ambitious project. Specifically, like, 
in this dynamic setting, highlighting the importance of beliefs and discrimination. Generally, you're both working on dynamic decision-making, but usually with different tools. How did you start working on this project specifically? Did you, Aislinn, first come up with the theoretical model that you wanted to test on the field? Or was it like the other way around, Alex? You had an empirical phenomenon in mind, and you were after a theoretical foundation of this phenomenon. And how was Michael Rosenberg, your co-author, involved in this project? So it's actually neither of the above. Um, so we'll address the question about Michael a second, but to come to your first question. Oh. We were, so I was, I heard about this platform. It's basically, so let me just give you a bit more detail about the platform we use. It's a math platform where you can post mathematical questions and then they're answered by other users on the forum. So it can be anything from undergraduate level up through PhD level. Mm -hmm. And I first heard about this platform and I was like, oh, this could be a neat platform if I ever, you know, needed a reference if I was trying to, I'm a theorist. And so if I was trying, trying to you know, find a result I needed, like, where can I find a theorem that proves this differential equation has a solution, something mm -hmm. like that. And I was like, hmm, let me, you know, let me test it out. Let me just post a couple random questions that I know the answer to and see if I get high quality, um, high quality answers. And so I went on the site as Julia, and I posted a couple different questions. One question was something that, you know, I had been stuck on previously and ended up getting an answer to, but it took a couple. I had to ask my advisor. I had to ask another person in my committee. I had to ask my friend in the robotics department who then asked his advisor. And it was basically finding this obscure theorem about um, solutions to differential equations for a special case of um, problem. So anyway, I knew it was a challenging question because I had been through about four very, um, very smart people to finally arrive at find the theorem that I needed when I had this question. And so I said, hmm, I wonder if, you know, if someone could have found this theorem more quickly if I had just posted it, if Stack Exchange had been available. And so I posted the question and it was downloaded. It was marked as not interesting. So what's viewed as interesting or how questions are evaluated in the site is people say you know is it creative is it challenging did it spark my did it spark my interest things like that it's quite quite subjective so I essentially I got my question was downloaded I didn't get any good answers but also I was just essentially it was marked as something that shouldn't be on the site because it wasn't interesting and so I said huh okay well I know this is an interesting question and then I was like, Alex and I were thinking, I was like, what if I had posted under a different name? So I created a new user account. I deleted my questions. You can't post the same thing twice. Waited two weeks till it was you know, out of the archive questions. And then I posted it under a different username. And I didn't, again, didn't get an answer, but I did get thing, comments such as, oh, this is a really interesting question. It's hard. I'm not sure. And just completely different response. And so, you know, first Alex and I were chatting at lunch and we're like, hmm, could be an interesting forum on which to test for discrimination. You know, it's, and then some of my other work is on reputation. And, I, and so we started talking about, well, oh, look, you actually, I was like, I wonder what would happen if I had been a high reputation user, but had the name Julia, like would it have been different? Our first question was thinking about how reputation interacted with discrimination and how that sort of dynamic process would change. And then from there, we did the experiment. And then from there, we did, worked on the theory as well in conjunction with the experiment. Yeah, like because- The two were very much hand in glove at that and, and, and that's really because the, once we started looking into the platform, it was just such a wonderful setting to study reputation for so many reasons. So for example, the fact that you can assign random names and actually generate reputation. And then after generating reputation, randomly assign names again, which allows you to have random assignment at both levels. So this is kind of a really unique feature on the platform that you can have 
exogenous variation, both on the dimension of gender in our case and on reputation. So you can really start looking at this causal effect of these dynamic processes. So that got us really excited. And as we started looking into the platform, we also found out that we can download the data from the site and, for example, look at whether there is discrimination there yeah, in the first all place. All the data, not just the data. From all of the data, like We can exactly. look at the hundreds of thousands of observations. And so, you know, that gave us, because as you, the, the actual experiment was very work intensive. And so we needed some sort of hint that we would find discrimination on the platform in the first place. And this sort of platform allowed us to do that by downloading the data. We ran a small pilot just with the initial accounts and things like that. So it was, uh, at that point, we were kind of rolling. Yeah, so just to pick up on what Alex said, you know, and this segues into also the role that Michael Rosenberg played on the project, is um, a big thing that you need to be careful of to causally identify discrimination in economics. So by causally identifying discrimination, it means that you essentially can attribute any differential treatment to the group identity, so gender, race, whatever group identity you're studying. And the challenge in doing that is you need to ensure that the productivity or the quality or whatever your metric of performance is, is the same for the two groups. Otherwise, it could be differences. And you can't just say, well, you know, this was a male and this is a female, but we're looking at, say, different qualities, so we don't know how comparable they are. And so that's where something like an auto or a correspondence study comes in, where you randomly assign the gender of the username to an exotic, something like a CV. So here we generated mathematics questions, and then we randomly assigned whether it was assigned to a female or a male user, so we could ensure that on average the quality was the same. But as Alex mentioned, a difficulty with studying dynamics is that once you lock in the user with one quality, then it's hard to, if there is discrimination, then say a male and a female who we generated enough posts to build up their reputation, the ones who make it to a reputation 100, even if we're randomly assigning question posts, because there's discrimination, the quality of posts that lead to reputation 100 for females is going to be different than the quality of posts that leads to 100 for males for the reputation. And so that would be essentially, we'd have exogeneity at the entry level, but not exogeneity at the high reputation level. And so as Alex said, the neat thing about the site that let us get around this was that you can change the username, you can reassign the username after the reputation is built. And what that let us do is we could build up half of our accounts, we could build the reputation on them under a female username, the other half we built it under a male username. And then so by building reputation, I mean generating posts on the site that was receiving feedback from the site that gave these users reputation points. And then once they got to the high reputations, so we targeted having the experienced accounts be in the top 25% of reputation on the site. And once they made it to that level, um, we could then reassign the username exogenously, randomly. So we flipped half of the males to females, half of the females to males, and it changed the entire history of posts on the site. So there was no record of the previous username. And so that essentially gave us the exogenous assignment that Alex just referenced at the high reputation level, which it's rare that you can have a setting where you have that much control over it. Right. Um, and that's really where Michael came in was that we were working together. He was he was actually an undergraduate in my behavioral econ class that I was teaching at Carnegie Mellon. And we started working together and he was just like she was just a really excellent research assistant. And we started working on this project and we realized we needed to actually in order to generate the reputation, we needed to generate the reputation. We needed to come up with the content. And Michael was just really instrumental in helping us think through what sort of questions we needed to generate, generate the questions himself, working through the particulars of the site. He helped us find other people to generate more content because it was just so much content that we needed to create. Yeah, it's very time. It's very time. <laughs> so my, Michael kind of led that part of the effort and he was uh, really instrumental 
instrumental in getting us getting us to actually be able to run this experiment in a timely manner because we have generating that much reputation top 25th percentile for that many accounts manually <laughs> is time consuming and he was super helpful for that so that that was the team yeah and he was also so as Alex mentioned we also did a lot of analysis on the data from the exactly. entire site which was huge data set it's you know it's hundreds of thousands of observations and more than a lot, lots of posts as well. And Michael is actually also a um, computer science major at CMU. So he had all of the coding science. technique in Python to generate loops to pull the data and analyze that huge data set for us. So yeah. he was just, he played such an instrumental role on these two key components of the project that we really think he was, it was only fair to make him a co-author. He really, he earned that yeah. position. Thank you very much for providing first-hand evidence about the roles in the project. This gives a much clearer picture on how you've managed all the workload, coming up with 280 usernames, generating the content, conducting the experiment. And a directly related question concerns the user reputation levels in the study. How did you calibrate the necessary level of reputation? Because it seems difficult to figure out what is the sufficiently high level of reputation that would lead to any detectable effect. Where did you get the benchmark from? Uh, so we looked at the, so the reputation district, we use this metadata or this mega data set to look at um, the reputation level of most users on the platform. And there's obviously a big right tail where there are some people who have 100,000 reputation points which would be the top 1%. And, um, and, you know, it's like they're like a math professor somewhere and it's something they post on their CV. But really most of the distribution is probably between about zero to 1,000, 1,500. And so we just, we looked at, um, we looked at that distribution and we just, we sort of thought that within 20, like within the top 25th percentile would be sufficiently high reputation that it was, you know, it would be someone who is very well regarded on the site, well respected. They clearly had established themselves, but it wasn't in this crazy range tail where first of all it'd be hard, too hard to get that many accounts there but second of all those people are almost are, they're viewed more as moderators on the yeah site exactly so that, that's the thing about the reputation on the site is it's not just a record of where you've been it also gives you a lot of privileges so once you hit a certain reputation level so way over a thousand you start being able to shut down other people's questions you just have all of these powers on the site so we wanted to stay away from that segment because that's just kind of like a different segment of the pool. And it's hard to think about how those people are going to be evaluated. <laughs> so we pre so one thing that we want to note is that everything that we're saying right now, we pre-registered. So for example, the top 25th percentile, the 100 reputation benchmark is something that we came up with before running the experiment, pre-registered, and then ran the experiment, knowing which analysis we were going to run and knowing which how we were going to generate the accounts in the first place. Oh, thanks. I've had this question in my mind for quite a long time. And concerning time, could you walk us through the project timeline? How long did it take from the time you got the idea to the publication of the paper? Um, 2015 is when we came up with the idea. Yeah, I, I think we had our first draft by... You first presented in January 2017. January, yep, January 2017. So I think it was, I, I presented it at Boo for the first time, actually. That was preliminary. We didn't have yeah. the draft yet, but I guess it was really a couple of months after that. Like I'd say, spring 2017 through fall 2018 was when the paper was at a peak presentation stage. You know, like that was the paper we were both giving for most seminars, mm -hmm. and we had a draft that was still we were updating it with comments and stuff, and we had a few things we needed to do a few lingering pieces of um, analysis with some data that we wanted to get from the company that took a little while to just 
which is legally work out the details to get. But um, but yeah, I think most probably the bulk of it was about two years for the yeah. um from first idea to designing the experiment to piloting it to pre-registering it to running the actual experiment yeah, it's about two and years. then yeah working out working on the theory and yeah the actual publication process for economics was relatively fast <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah from submission to publication it was like i think november 2017 and then yeah I, it was accepted by the it was like a year maybe yeah. from submission to acceptance yep. a year 15 months maybe. Yep. It, was, it was quick <laughs> it was, a, it was oh, yeah. A, yeah okay this is impressive and actually, I would have been really depressed if you told me that it took only two years or so. With the benefit of insight, is there anything you would have done differently in the way you designed and conducted the study? No, I mean, I can't really think of anything. Oh, perfect answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, usually you find that some sort of lingering, like, ah, oh, I should have done this instead, but that's it, what I don't think. It I was just such a, it, it was, was so labor like, intensive that we did so much planning for yeah, every step. Yeah, I think step. we were just really, really, really careful. Yeah, we were really ahead careful time because we knew that it wasn't, like, it's, when you're running a lab experiment, it's pretty easy to rerun stuff a couple of times, co run a couple of pilots before you pre-register it. But we, this we knew, like, once we did this, it was just, it's so labor intensive that if we messed it up, it was going to be, like, a year of work. So we were, we really carefully thought through, like, how to do the name yeah. changes and and even things like, I didn't mention this component before, but we also did the same analysis for um, answer posts. Most of what I spoke about before was for question posts. And on the theory side here, our um, prediction for answer posts was that their mathematical answers are a lot less subjective than mathematical questions. So questions are evaluated on whether they're interesting, whether they're creative, well-formed, so on and so forth. You can imagine that's quite subjective. Whereas answers, it's much more you should vote it up if it's correct and vote it down if it's incorrect. And so again, our um, theory here was predicted that if discrimination came from beliefs, there should be less discrimination on answers than questions because it doesn't matter if you think that, say, a female user is worse at answering questions than a male user. If you see a good answer, you should just be able to see that it's a good answer, whereas your your prior beliefs matter more for the question. And so, in fact, we did see that. We found almost no discrimination on answers, whereas, as we said, we found quite a bit of discrimination on the initial questions. And so the challenge there for the experiment was that, uh, again, we needed to ensure that the quality of the answers was the same, was randomly assigned to male versus female users. Users, but we were doing this in real time. If you don't answer a question within 15 minutes of it being posted, yeah, and the questions we were targeting to answer were more like probably like advanced undergraduate or early PhD level questions, like things that you could answer in relatively short time. We weren't targeting the questions that you know, would take days to answer. Um, and so in order, we had to make sure that the RAs writing the answers were blinded when they were writing the answer. They couldn't, and but we couldn't have them just go through, write a bunch of answers and someone else would post it later because then their answers would be too far down the queue. They wouldn't get any attention because the question would already be answered. So we basically had to have two RAs working simultaneously in real time where one RA would pick a question write an answer to it. The other one was waiting. The other one then, we had a pre-specified list of the usernames that would be randomly assigned to, which the RA writing the question didn't know because they were blinded. And then the other RA would find the username to assign it to and then post it. 
so that we could do this blinded procedure for the, so the, whoever was writing the answers didn't know the gender that would be assigned. So we didn't introduce any sort of like subconscious bias when they were writing the answers. And so that again was something that we had to like really carefully think through because it took a really long time to get these RAs lined up and working and waiting for questions. Like each answer, maybe one question would come in every half hour that they could answer. So that part, and then to do that, you know, however many times. And also to recruit the type of research assistants who could be, who were, able to do this in the first place. So we had to, for example, post an advertisement in the mathematics department. Yeah. And then we <laughs> had to test them. We had to get them to write a couple yeah. of answers for us first to make sure, because if they wrote poor quality answers, then it would just, it just, yeah. you know, we were, our goal was to write at least like somewhat competent answers, yeah. not just try this or, you know, they had to sort of understand how to do it and make it consistent. So, yeah. So yes. yeah, these, you know, just like seeing how long, when we would pilot, just seeing how long it took to get, say like, 20 observations for the pilot we were just really 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 careful about yeah going through the different steps ahead of time okay i would like this is a lesson being very careful at the beginning saves you much trouble at the end think now to the beginning of the project besides being partners on this paper you're partners in life did you have any hesitation about working together on this project <laughs> <laughs> i don't think we did i don't think we did, no. We, we talk about research pretty frequently. Yeah, it was just seemed natural. When we were talking about it, we we're like, oh, we should work on this. It just yeah. it was a, you know, it's funny. Since then, I've had a couple of students or other um, academic couples ask me, like, you know, I had this idea with my partner. Do you think I should work with them? I know you worked with Alex. Like, what do you think? And I don't know. It's funny. I, don't, I never asked anyone that. We just really, yeah, like, we it just, just like naturally, it was just very natural. Yeah. And I mean, we have follow up work, right? So it, yeah. It's not like this made us stop wanting to work together. <laughs> so uh, we have we have a we have a follow up work in in discrimination. We have follow up work in kind of the judgment and decision making space. So we're continuing to work together. It's yeah. Although we we did joke that working with your partner does give you almost perfect monitoring of your co-author because <laughs> yeah. you know. If I'm supposed to be writing a proof and Alex looks over and I'm on Twitter or something, yeah. he's like, <laughs> and vice versa. I'm not like that. No, he's not. I'm not like that. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. But, uh, okay, still, who has the last word then? We never, I thought, I saw that, yeah, we never really had something that we didn't come to agreement on after discussion. Yeah, it was never, really, everything was really mutually. It was very, yeah. Like, we, we both designed the experiment together and ran the experiment together. Like, I had a lot of input on the theory. You know, we talked, we had long walks mm -hmm. to talk about aspects of the theory, aspects of the experimental design. So it wasn't, it was really a back and forth. Like there were no, yeah, there was never a point where we like yeah. had different opinions. And then after talking, mm -hmm. you know, we sometimes obviously we started with different, like, oh, I was like, oh, I think this. And I was like, I think this, but we would just talk it through and we'd come to agree, like just without any, just by listening to each other and yeah. hearing each other's reasoning. Yeah. We always, uh, but I think we have a pretty similar underlying philosophy on research. Yeah. So I think it was, we didn't come to the table with like very different approaches. Yeah, it's not like Aislinn hates behavioral economics and, yeah. and, and <laughs> or you know, I'm a big theory. <laughs> exactly. It was so. we were we were on the same page. <laughs> okay, I see. Broad agreement then. Any jealousies when Aislinn's working with another coarser or other way around? No. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Definitely not. Aislinn, <laughs> we're free to work with anybody else. <laughs> okay, great answer. In a related paper, the language of discrimination using experimental versus observational data, published in 2018 in AEA Papers and Proceedings, you exploit the language content of the Q&A forum post. 
you find that discrimination takes already place at the level of language. Personally, I can imagine that researching discrimination has transformed your view on human behavior. How has this view changed over time? I mean, I think one thing that really has struck me in thinking more about the dynamic process is just how out of context looking at behavior at one point in the pipeline can be. And if there is discrimination, we don't expect there to just be, if there is discrimination, we don't expect it to occur at just one point in the pipeline. And therefore not taking into account, say, earlier discrimination or also how such discrimination is going to impact later behavior. Really, you know, obviously it's not always possible to do that. And it's not, this isn't to say that all of the work that only looks at a single point isn't useful, but it's just, it's, I think it's broader to have this sort of dynamic context, at least within your mind, thinking about, well, how would this relate to discrimination at entry level or promotion to very senior positions down the line when you're thinking about policies and things like that? Because it's, you know, it's important to look at the whole pipeline. If we really want to try and mitigate discrimination, then interacting or having an intervention at one stage will have effects at later stage. And even the right intervention to take at a given stage should very much depend on what you think is going on earlier. So if you want to intervene at, say, the university admission stage, you need to think of what's happening when people are being evaluated in high school or taking tests in high school, like the um, SAT test in the U.S. or other achievement Mm -hmm. tests, or what's happening when they're facing entries all the way down through the earlier education years. Yeah, this this idea that at a given point, you're not really in isolation. The fact that, let's say you get to a certain point and you have an evaluator who's just completely not using group identity to evaluate anything, and they're not taking prior, and let's say there was discrimination earlier in the process, this group identity blind evaluation could actually lead to discriminatory final outcomes if these individuals had faced differential discrimination earlier on. Because for example, one group could be kind of positively selected. They are actually higher, you do have a higher quality pool. But if that's not being taken into account at this later stage, then you're going to end up with discriminatory outcomes despite no visible discrimination based on group identity. So, and this is what you kind of learn from these dynamic processes is that everything is dependent on what happened before. And that's something that I somewhat appreciated before. You know, I I studied dynamic decision-making in the past, but it took this project and kind of the the sort of follow-up work Aislinn and I are doing to really help me understand how important this this is, especially with beliefs and beliefs about how other people before me are making judgments, how other people in the economy are making judgments, how that affects things at every single stage of the process. Yeah, and I think to highlight on the last thing Alice just said, another component is really this beliefs about what other people are doing. And so, and I think just really formalizing the theory and thinking through it carefully here made us think a lot about subjective evaluations. And so if you're looking at a recommendation letter, you could have the same recommendation letter for, say, a male and a female, but if there's discrimination, it's not necessarily reflecting the same underlying experiences. So you need to have beliefs when you're interpreting a piece of subjective information, you need to have beliefs about, or, you know, it could even be a grade. A grade is subjective if it's based on a project, let's say, instead of a test score where it's just graded in a a more consistent way. And in this sense, an A for a project when there's discrimination is not necessarily conveying the same information for, say, the group who's being discriminated against and the other group. Um, And so really just 
thinking about this idea of like, it's not just, okay, so, you know, discrimination is usually defined as like, if both students had an A, did they receive the same treatment? But here, if what maps into that A is like, if both students perform the same underlying quality project, but one got an A and one got a B, because there's discrimination there, then mapping the A and the B into differential treatment is just essentially exacerbating the discrimination yeah. at the next level in the pipeline. And so really thinking about these, like, it's not just my beliefs of, when I'm evaluating someone, it's not just my beliefs about whether the groups are similar that matter. It's also my beliefs about whether other people also believe that, that can play a role in generating discrimination. Yeah. If I, I might think that other, I might think the groups are the same and other people believe that as well, but if I'm wrong and other people do discriminate, then that's gonna also lead to discrimination. A differential treatment for the same input. Okay, for now, thank you very much for pointing out these fascinating dimensions around discrimination. And to conclude this episode, I would like to ask you a few personal questions about your work environment and how you conduct research in general. And I am a very curious person and sometimes a little bit too curious, but I mean, you are fascinating researchers. And both of you did your PhD at the University of California, San Diego. Did your collaboration start during your PhD? Did you meet there? Uh, yeah, we, we met at UCSD, obviously. Yeah. We didn't start working together until a couple of years after that, I guess. I think, I guess this was our first project. This was our first project. So, yeah, yeah we, several years after we got, we had talked about a lot of ideas, but, you know, like sort of informally, nothing yeah. that ever, this was the first thing that we really started pushing forward on. Because we had yeah. been working in, I think our, our research interests converged over time which probably is partially due to the fact yeah. that we talk about talk to each other about research a lot so right ah nice to know <laughs> you're both incredibly productive researchers Aislinn you have been very active in topics that cover learning under model misspecification moral hazard and the econometrics of randomized experiments Alex you work on many questions pertaining to for example how prior outcomes affect risk-taking, learning, and social interactions. How do you manage to be so productive while juggling many responsibilities, including the one of being parents? Planning, uh, <laughs> help, our uh, parental help. Parental we help. both we have four very involved grandparents. Which yeah, is so that's, that's been amazing. super helpful. Um, yeah. Making lists. Alex likes to tease me about my list, but yeah. I make a lot of lists. <laughs> I yeah. make lists of lists, but yeah. yeah, just to sort of try and keep keep prioritizing what can be done, what needs uninterrupted time, what can I fit in between meetings, half an hour here, half an hour there, and always having like those two lists that I can say about half an hour, I can pull something that doesn't require deep attention versus keeping days open to make sure I have time to focus just on research that requires really getting into it for a few hours. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, so. And really lo liking the job a lot, right? Liking the research. I mean, that helps <laughs> uh, <laughs> getting being motivated. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sitting there being only a PhD student and still struggling with my time management. It's a great way to not Yeah, exactly. Time. I, 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 mean, I, I felt like I was busy before we, our, um, our child, our son is two now. And I felt like I was busy before he was born. And now I look back and I was like, I was never busy I mean I, I want <laughs> I look back now and I'm like how did I have so much time like oh my gosh if I had that much time now I don't know what I would do with it but <laughs> when you when you sit down to work and you know that you have to do a daycare pickup in a certain number of hours it's a lot easier to yeah. not kind of casually read the news for a bit and you know start your day right away yeah 
Okay, then I will try to enjoy my flexibility now. Last question for you. What single piece of advice would you give to early career researchers trying to write a publishable paper in behavioral economics? This is probably a hard one. It's hard to come up with advice that's not just kind of like a cliche, like work on interesting questions. <laughs> I, I think it depends on your approach to research. So the way that I do research a lot of the time is very much driven by me reading papers and me seeing a lot of presentations and kind of being inspired by a particular question that seems to me is both important and open. And then kind of being able to identify these sorts of open questions And then to me, going through this process, it seems like there's there's a lot of, I think, really important and interesting open questions in behavioral economics, particularly with respect to dynamic and deci dynamic decision making. So to me, it's like kind of keep your eyes open for things like that. Read a lot and consume see, a lot of research. See a lot of seminars too. Yeah. Like you want to see work in progress. You don't want to just see the published papers and top fives because it's it's really hard to see like how did that go from idea to top five paper, like see preliminary presentations and talk to people, you know, talk to people informally about ideas um, or ask them how yeah. they, how they're, what they're working on. And I think, you know, I think another important thing, and this isn't just particularly for behavioral, but a lot of students think that the idea they come up with has to be perfect. It has to be this amazing idea. And your first paper or second paper doesn't need to be your best idea. I'm um, actually be kind of depressing if it was because it meant that, you know, you were only going downhill from there. Um, and so I think more than that, research is very much a, it's a learned skill. It's something that you work on through doing research. And so just get started on something, work on something. Yeah. And Ideas come a lot more naturally when you're not sitting there just staring at a screen trying to come yeah. up with something. You know, if it's, I think for me, it was like the first idea or two was something that I was consciously trying to come up with an idea. And then once I had a couple of projects to work on, the rate of ideas was faster than the rate at which I could work on them. And so then at that point, you always just kind of keep a list of ideas. And once you finish a project, you see which one seems the most promising to work on next yeah. rather than having to try and just like sit there with nothing and come up with something. Yeah, I've never come up with an idea of just sitting at a, at my desk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not in a million years. Yeah, I mean, so. my first idea was based on a question from I was taking a theory class, and there was something that I didn't think was behaviorally realistic, and I said, "Oh, you know, I know that's the sort of the rational model, quote unquote." But um, I bet what if people didn't weren't didn't know that? What if they made this naive mistake? And it was like extending that model, and then it just turned into a paper and similar like other my first questions came up with things like that like looking at models from class or looking at seminars and thinking oh I think this could be an interesting angle to look at and then other like you know this paper was just from every experience can turn into an interesting idea even when you're least expecting it like yeah. I, I certainly wasn't expecting my little experiment on the math platform to turn into a paper yeah or my little you know when I just try it when someone told me about it and I just posted a question out of curiosity. I wasn't expecting that to become something, but it did. So just keep your eyes open. Yeah. So in a nutshell, be curious, keep your eyes open and dive into the world of economics. I would really like to speak much longer with you, but unfortunately the time's over. Dear Aislinn, dear Alex, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time joining the BS Uncovered podcast, despite your tight schedule. It was extremely inspiring to meet you and gain insight into your research. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, thank you very much.